today we continue in the book of Ephesians. So uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And in particular, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 10 today. Ephesians 1, uh, starting in verse 7. So turn there. Turn in your Bibles there with me. In ancient times, prisoners of war were spoils of war, uh, which is to say that uh, when a nation came and conquered another nation, they carried off people as spoils, as, as goods, uh, and uh, they may be uh, spoils in the sense of they now have uh, a, a ready supply of uh, slaves to do hard work, and that was their intention was to carry these uh, people off uh, that they may have uh, people to do hard work, heavy work, people work the the natural citizens wouldn't want to do. Uh, however, sometimes those people who were carried off were not designed for hard work. Uh, they had no calluses on their hands, and so uh, they they weren't as good for that. But that didn't mean that they did not have value. Often in such a cases. Uh, and this was so in the time of the apostles and around the time of the apostles. Uh, often what would happen is those who had value to the home nation of some sort, maybe they were dignitaries, governors, uh, or some kind of noble, uh, they would send message back to the home nation and say, hey, we got your guy here. Uh, pay us X amount of money and we'll release him. And so the person may be redeemed with a ransom. They would, a ransom would be paid for them and they would be redeemed. And in some ways, this practice still happens today. Uh, even here in our nation, and, and right, we might have uh, strong words to say about the types of people that we would redeem from foreign nations. But even today, right, our government, uh, on behalf of a citizen in prison in another nation, uh, redeems them, uh, ransoms them, uh, whether that be with uh, some kind of funds, monetary funds, or whether it be a prisoner exchange, right? We've, we've seen this, we hear this happening, uh, and even now uh, it is still happening, right? There's still negotiations going on. And as we come to our passage today, as we think about this issue of redeeming and ransom, as we come to our passage today, I want us to see that through the beloved Son's blood, we have redemption and become partakers of the mystery of the ages. Through the beloved Son's blood, we have redemption and become partakers of the mystery of the ages. So let us go to our passage. And again, as we did last time, I'm going to read for us the whole sentence. Because remember that verses 3 through 14 is one sentence in the Greek. And so I want us to read the whole sentence, get the whole context, but we'll zero in today on verses 7 through 10. So let us read. This is God's word, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. 
He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the, his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. So remember that Paul is in these verses, verses 3 through 14, offering a blessing to God or praise to God, right? So that word at the very beginning in verse 3, blessed be the God, that is to indicate praise be to God. And he's extolling the glory of God in its various dimensions. And if you are in Christ, you ought to pay particular attention to these verses right your god the god who redeemed you is worthy of all praise worthy of your praise god has blessed you in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that's what verse 3 tells us right and that includes god's purpose and plan from before time began to save some that's what we looked at last week. God's electing love is reason to praise him forevermore. And today, as we come to our passage, as we continue in this long sentence of Paul, we continue to find more reason that God is and is to be blessed. And so let's see first redemption in verses 7 and 8. Redemption. And verse 7 begins, in him. And we ask, in him, in whom? Who are we talking about here? And it's in Christ, or it's in the Beloved, right? At the end of verse 6, which, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, which is a, uh, a way of talking about Christ the Messiah. He is the Beloved in Christ. And what has the Beloved done for us? What does the verse say here? It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. And this word redemption re relates back to what we were talking about at the beginning, right? It is this, this idea, this practice of buying something out of, uh, out of slavery or out of issue. Uh, if you look at a coupon and look real close at the very fine print, it says your redemption value is like one one hundredth of a cent. So I, I want to try and bring a hundred of these together and see if someone will give me a penny. Uh, probably not. But, but right, what's this idea? When you take it to the store, the store is redeeming it from you. They're giving you money and they're taking the coupon back. And then what they do is they take that coupon back to the manufacturer and the manufacturer redeems it from them. But the ransom is paid. The, a redemption is made. It, to redeem is to buy something back. And it indicates that a cost has been paid. 
There's an occasion in the Gospels when Jesus is teaching in the teaching the people and some profess belief in Jesus. Some of the Jews believe, but Jesus really knows the truth of their belief. And so I want us to look at this, uh, this section from John chapter 8. And John 8 uh, is a long passage that has a lot of this interaction back and forth between Jesus and the Jewish, uh, Jewish people, those who believe and those who don't believe. But this one section, John 8, 31 through 36, John 8, 31 through 36, uh, Jesus says something uh, that is important and that relates to this issue of redemption. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus is encouraging here those who, who profess belief in him to continue in his word, to continue to know the truth. And in so knowing the truth, they will be free. And as he encourages them in this, right, they, they protest and say, but wait, we're, we're already free. What are you talking about, Jesus? You're being nonsensical. We're free. Now, there's the very obvious issue here with their statement in that they aren't free, are they? What are the people, the Jewish people in the time of Jesus uh, in relation to the Romans? Subjects, not citizens, right? That's a very different word. They're subjects. They're under subjugation of the Romans. Are they free? Not really. They're under Roman law and Roman rule. Uh, they're enslaved to Rome in a sense. So they don't really have the freedom that they think they do. Uh, they answer to another. But Jesus points them to a deeper reality, right? He's not, he's not just saying, listen, I'm not talking about earthly freedom. I'm not talking about freedom from a master of this earth. I'm talking about freedom from sin. They are slaves because they practice sin. And as they practice sin, they are slaves to sin. They are slaves. And so, by the way, are you, if you practice sin? Paul reminds the church in Rome of this very fact in Romans 6.16. Romans 6.16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey? And listen, this is the choice, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Right? Those to whom Jesus is speaking need to be set free, that they may be free indeed. Those to whom Paul is writing to the church in Rome, they have been set free. Paul labors that point in chapter 6. So the question is, what has happened between what Jesus says in John 8 and what Paul writes in Romans 6? What has changed? What has happened? The cross, the breaking of the body and the shedding of the blood of Christ Jesus. 
Right? This is what we remember. This is what we memorialize when we take the Lord's Supper. Why is it important we take the Lord's Supper? Why did Christ establish that ordinance? That we may remember what was paid on our behalf. This we ought reflect on when we take the Lord's Supper, the price that Christ has paid. Because, friend, outside of the work of Christ Jesus applied to you, you are enslaved to sin, you are sold over to sin, you lie in the bonds of sin, you are its prisoner, you are its slave, and it is your master. And the price, the ransom for you, is your life. And you can't pay it yourself. You can't pay the ransom for yourself. No matter how much good you do, no matter how much you work at being good, you will never satisfy the debt you owe. There is only one who can pay it. There is only one who has paid the ransom for the many, Christ Jesus. He paid through his blood. He paid with his blood, his own blood. Hebrews 9 Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, the author of Hebrews writes and tells us in Hebrews 9 here, listen to this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater, more perfect tent, now made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ Jesus has entered into the Holy of Holies, and this is not the earthly version, right? This is not the earthly shadow that he has done this at. He has gone into the Holy of Holies in heaven, and there he poured out the blood of the sacrifice in order to atone for the sins of many, the sins of his people. And what blood was it? Did he find a goat, a lamb, a calf? No, he took his own blood. He shed his blood. It is through his blood that we have redemption. If the blood of goats could purify for a time, how much more the blood of the only begotten Son of God. In him we have redemption through his blood. He paid the price. And notice here that this word have in verse 7, in him we have redemption. This word have is in the present tense. We have it now. We have redemption now. And it's the sense in which we have an ongoing redemption. We have redemption now. If you wake up in the morning, you can say, I have redemption now. If you are in Christ. And it's not just a past tense reality, it's a present tense reality. We have an ongoing possession of redemption. The author of Hebrews describes it which way? As an eternal redemption. 
And to put a finer point on, what is this redemption about, right? What is this redemption about? It is the forgiveness of our trespasses. Look at that in verse 7, right? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, or the forgiveness of our sins, or the forgiveness of our offenses. Brothers and sisters in Christ, marvel at the work of God here. This was God's purpose from before the foundation of the world. He chose you and he planned everything necessary for your salvation. Do you not have reason to praise God today? And listen, I know that there are many circumstances in life, difficult circumstances, hard things. Sometimes we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But ever have we have reason to praise God. Because we can at least sing, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, seeking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. What does this freedom from sin's power mean? What ought you do now? Right? Paul in Romans 6 writes that if we have been freed from sin, we should not, indeed we cannot, remain in it. We are dead to sin. How can we who are dead to sin still live in it? We're dead to it. Or take what he writes to the Corinthian Christians. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, the issue there in the Corinthian church is that they were unmoved by evil sexual immorality in their midst such such a sexual immorality that it even disgusted the world and yet they were celebrating it as though it were something good and paul writes to them in first corinthians 6 verses 15 through 20 first corinthians 6 15 through 20 do you not know that your bodies are members of christ Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Notice what Paul says there. You've been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. You have been redeemed through his blood. So glorify God in your body by fleeing sexual immorality. Right? Contrary to what is so prevalent in our culture, the discussion, the language, the, what we see in media, uh, what we see on the news, our bodies are not our own to do with whatever we please. We can't just do with them what we want. And listen, that's true whether or not you're in Christ. Understand that, right? That, that is true because God is your creator. But if you are in Christ, it is all the more true because you were bought with a price. If you're in Christ, then your body is God's. It's not yours. You have been redeemed from sin and death. You have been ransomed through the blood of Jesus. You've been forgiven your trespasses. And this changes how you now live. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, what does the world around you see in you? Do they see slaves to the same sinful passions that they are slaves to? Are you still subject to the whims of your old master? Or do they see in you freedom? Has the truth of Christ Jesus set you free that you may be free indeed? And yes, we are challenged by the continuing presence of sin in our lives. There is, however, a difference between losing a battle and losing a war. There's a big difference. And some of you, and myself included in this, sometimes we live as though the war against sin is hopeless and we are losers and we are defeated in it. The war is lost. We live in bodies of sin. Let's just give up. But it is not hopeless. If you are in Christ, Christ has won you the victory. And yes, we may be challenged by the continuing presence of sin in our lives. We may confess with Paul, as he does in Romans 7, that when I want to go and do good, evil lies close at hands. We may confess that be, to be true, but never, never ought we lose hope. Never is the war against sin hopeless, for Christ has won the victory already. So quit muttering words of defeat and cling to Christ. And in the midst of those challenges, in the midst of struggle and temptations, say this word instead. Redeemed. Redemption. Remember his shed, bloody, uh, shed blood and broken body. Confess your sins that you may be forgiven and cleansed from all right, unrighteousness. Right? Consider the riches of his grace. And let's look at that next, right? In verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I'll briefly say here in verse 8, uh, about verse 8 here, that again there's a question of punctuation. Remember that in the original Greek there is not punctuation. And so the question is, where does the thought end? Some argue that the thought ends or kind of right in the middle. That, that is, it ends at which he lavished upon us, and we might put a period there, a semicolon, or in the ESV, it's a comma. And then, in all wisdom and insight, connects us to verse 9. Others would argue, other scholars would argue, that verse 8 is uh, joined to verse 7. And so the thought is, according to the riches of grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, period. And I'd fall into that camp. Uh, again, this is something that we just have to ascertain from the context uh, and from what makes sense, right? What, what is Paul trying to get at? In this, I think he is trying to get at the grace that God lavishes upon us is done in wisdom and prudence, in all wisdom and prudence. So let's reflect upon this. Uh, remember that grace, right? When we talk about grace, we're talking about an unearned favor, unearned favor, unmerited favor. It is something that we are not deserving of, but which God graces us with. So it's unearned favor. And we might ask, what are the riches of his grace? Or we could go back up to verse six and we might ask, 
What is his glorious grace? What is the glory of his grace? Uh, What is this grace which he has lavished upon us? It's everything. It's everything we've been thinking about thus far. It's the redemption of sinners through the work of Jesus Christ. It's freedom from the bonds of sin. It's being rescued from the domain of darkness. And note these words here. Look at these words. Riches. Lavished. And what do they indicate to us? Why does Paul use those words? Because in one sense, words fail to unpack, fail to speak the fullness of the measure of God's grace towards those in Christ Jesus. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. What's every spiritual blessing? Every, all of them, every single one of them. Right. So when we talk about here, when we talk about these riches, this lavished, God is not miserly in giving us grace. He is not stingy in blessing his people. Paul says this in Romans 8.32. He writes this to the Roman church. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How lavish is the grace of God? He gave his only begotten son. So what Paul is doing there, right? He's saying he gave us the greatest thing that he could ever give us, his own begotten son. And in comparison, what trifle, and because believe me, in comparison, everything else is a trifle in comparison to to the only begotten son. What trifle would God withhold from us? He's already given us the most he could, the greatest thing he could. What, what else, what other little thing could he give us? God gives good gifts and he doesn't give them sparingly. He gives abundantly. He gives abundantly of his grace, right? And we say, praise God for this. Praise God that he lavishes us with rich grace, with the riches of his grace the glory of his grace. And there are times when the weight of this makes me weep because how fickle my feelings are towards God. How often my thoughts are turned uh, to groaning like the Israelites in the wilderness. Man, I miss Egypt. And you just want to slap them and say, you knucklehead. But in so doing, really what we're doing, we're slapping ourselves and say, you knucklehead, right? But perhaps here you may protest and say, well, God does withhold good gifts because things in your life are not the way that you would want them to be, uh, the way they should be if God is good in your estimation. His riches are lavished, and this is, I think, why, why this latter part here applies, right? This latter part of verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, or in all wisdom and prudence. I don't, I don't think we're to read there that these are two separate things. I think this is just a compromise uh, to... to to bring together all the disparate parts that we might understand of wisdom and understanding, insight, prudence, all these things. God lavishes his riches with all wisdom and insight. And in other words, what this means is that God knows what he is doing and what he is doing is always best. 
To be God's people does not mean a carefree life here on this earth. There is work. There is suffering. Right? Paul writes of his own sufferings to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he goes through this great list of things. And he does so to, to kind of shame the Corinthians because they, they were following after people who were boasting about how great they were. And Paul says, you want to have reason for boast? I could boast in the Lord all day long. He says, I'm talking like a madman. I'm talking like a fool. But I'll be foolish if it's to prove my point that you want to see boasting. I'll give you boasting. Who has suffered like I have for the cause of Christ? So he goes through and he lists all these things he's had to suffer for the sake of Christ. And, and to add to that, we get to chapter 12. And to add to that, he says, And then I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me. And God withheld his grace. Or did he? Look at this, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, and that right there tells us God's answer to Paul's prayer. Paul asked for grace and says, Give me grace that this thorn may leave me. And the answer is no. And did God withhold the riches of his grace? Listen to this. Listen to what Paul concludes. But he said to me, this is what God speaks to him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul concludes, therefore, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, right, so, so Paul concludes that he's going to boast of his weaknesses. He will contentedly suffer much, for the sake of Christ. And why is this? Because God lavishes his riches of grace upon him. His thorn in the flesh is actually a grace. Notice that, that what he says there. It was given me that I may not become conceited. If I didn't have that thorn, it wouldn't be a grace. Grace does not mean, your redemption does not mean that life is nothing but blue skies all of your days. But grace does mean that your future is secure and that there is coming a day when there will be no more sorrow, sickness, or sadness. There will be a day when the hand of God wipes away every tear. There will be a day when those who have been martyred for the sake of Christ will be avenged. But that day will not come. And this is remarkable. I think this is remarkable when we think about this, when we think about the, the riches of the grace of God being lavished upon his people, the, the day for the avenging 
of those who have been martyred for the sake of Christ will not come, Revelation 6.11 tells us, until the full number of their brothers shall be complete. Consider that. More must be martyred yet. God is good to have mercy on many brothers and sisters in Christ, to let them enter into rest with peace. But some who are lavish with the riches of his grace will enter into their rest with a sword, a spear, maybe a bullet. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And so I would say, teenagers, don't be lulled into this uh, by this world into thinking that your life should be one of security and comfort. Don't listen to those even within the church who, who preach messages of peace, peace, when there is no peace. But hold to the truth that says in Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen to this, teenagers provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. He has redeemed his people through the blood of his beloved, and in this a great mystery has been revealed. And so let us consider that next in verses 9 and 10. Mystery. So God has redeemed us. He has lavished upon us the riches of his grace and all wisdom and insight. And in verse 9 tells us, making known to us the mystery of, of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Right, so this is God's plan as a plan for the fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a virgin. And the plan for the fullness of time, Paul writes here, he says to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth, or to sum up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The mystery is this. Christ has accomplished in his redemption of his people the fulfilling of that mystery. It's been revealed. People in times of old, people in the the times of the prophets and the kings and the judges, The people in the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they said, God, how are you going to accomplish this? How are you going to accomplish your purpose? Uh, Notice that even back in the time of Adam and Eve, uh, when they begin to have children, they're like, "Is is this the one? You said you would crush the head of the serpent. Is this him? Yet the first uh, two sons, right? One is killed, the other is the murderer. This mystery is God has accomplished redemption in Christ. And in so doing, this is the second part of the mystery. He has brought together a people. He has united a people. The latter part, this this idea of unity is especially emphasized in in the book of Ephesians. Uh, For instance, we could go to Ephesians 2. Go to Ephesians 2 and look at uh, like verses 12 through 14. Uh, He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul labors to encourage the church that there is now unity between Jew and Gentile or Jew and Greek. Or as he writes to the Galatian church, he says, Galatians 3, 28 through 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is, no, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ. And this changes your relationship to one another. Indeed, Christ changes what it means to be the people of God. In Christ, the people of God are the, not those who are of a genealogical descent. It's not about being Jewish. It's about being in Christ. The people of God are the people God has chosen to be his people. And the mystery revealed by Christ, the administration that is suitable uh, is for the fullness of times is this, that it includes more than just the Jewish person. And realize this, all things were created for Christ. Christ is the focus of all things, whether in heaven, which we do not know, or on earth, which we do. All things, all beings, everything and everyone is for the glory of God. Of Christ, Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things in him, in him all things hold together. You exist because of Christ Jesus. And you exist for Christ Jesus. You are because Christ is. And while it may not always seem like it, Christ is Lord over all things. To him has been given the dominion of all things by the ancient of days. And there is coming a day when the, the reality of this will be fully seen and felt. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question then for you is, what will your relation to Christ be at that time? What will be your relation to Christ at your death? Friend, you are created, you were created to glorify Christ Jesus. And you may not believe that, but that doesn't change the truth of that. You may not want to believe that. You may well prefer your sin over, over all other things. You may prefer the evils that you think and say and do than all else. Our world applauds sexual immorality and all kinds of evil passions. There is much evil in the worldliness that is portrayed in movies and TV shows, TikToks and YouTube videos. Such things exist. I'm going to make a bold statement here. Such media exists. The media empire that rakes in billions of dollars exists to this end. To convince you 
that it is good to be enslaved to sin. The lies of the evil one linger in our ears. The same lie that he told Adam and Eve in the garden. God wants to withhold good from you. Don't you want to be like God? God knows that once you eat of this tree, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. God wants to withhold that from you. Take it for yourself. God is a stingy miser. He wants everything for himself and nothing for you. But listen not to the evil one or to this world which is under his sway. Listen to the one who has created you. See in him love that would redeem you from sin and death. He gave his only begotten son that you might not perish but have eternal life. He calls you out of your sin. He calls you to confess your trespasses for what they are, evil. He tells you to repent and return to him and find the forgiveness of your sins. So this day, friend, consider Christ Jesus. Turn to him. Turn from your sins. Run to your creator, to the one for whom you were created. Find in God rich grace. And in such grace you will find the forgiveness of your sins. Redemption through his blood. And brothers and sisters in Christ, praise God that he has made known to us the mystery of his will. Praise him, praise him, tell of his excellent greatness. You exist for the glory of God, and the glory of God is not contrary to your good. Though you may suffer now, though you may even be killed for your faith in Christ, these light and momentary afflictions are eclipsed by an eternal weight of glory to come. You live now not for yourself and not for this moment. You live for Christ. And that changes everything. It changes your relationship to sin. It changes your relationship to sex. It changes your relationship to your natural family. It changes your relationship to work. It changes your relationship to others who believe in Christ. It changes your relationship to your future. Husbands, your relationship to your wife is changed because of Christ's redeeming work. Wives, your relationships to your husband is changed because of the blood of Christ. Children, your relationship to your parents is changed by the forgiveness of your sins in Christ. The changes in those relationships, by the way, are what Paul will later explain in the book of Ephesians. We're not there yet. So I just want to give us a taste of that. That's the reality to come. But right now we're here in this section of praise and we're praising God because of the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Here and now understand that you're different when Christ is your Lord. So, let us live in light of the mystery that has been revealed to us. Let us live in light of our redemption through the blood of Christ. Let us live in the lavish riches of the grace of God towards us in Christ. It changes everything. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Do you see that? Do you feel that? Do you live that? It truly matters. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, praise be to your holy name. Praise you, O Father, for you have done. You have done marvelous works. 
Praise to you, Christ Jesus, for you have done marvelous works. Praise to you, Holy Spirit, for you have done marvelous works. Father God, give us the understanding to know what is the riches of your grace which you have lavished upon us in Christ. Father God, I pray that for those of us who are in Christ, that we would truly comprehend that, that we have been redeemed, we have been bought at a price. And Father, for those who do not know you, I pray that they would taste and see that you are good. Lord God, that they would have a comprehension of these things, that you by your Spirit would would open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Father God, we exist. We exist to bring you glory. We exist to praise your name. Oh, Father, might we, may we, indeed, uh, shall we not. Father, for the, the, the community that lies around us that, that is dead in their sins and trespasses, that lives in darkness. Father God, may they too see the light of Christ Jesus. May they know who Christ is. Father God, give us boldness to declare it. Father God, help us to walk before you and before this watching world in holiness. And Father, when we must suffer, For the sake of Christ. O Lord, give us the peace that surpasses understanding that this world may know, that they may know of who Christ is by how we live. Who is sufficient for these things? Only you are, O God. So we pray. Help us, strengthen us, guide us, be praised in us. In Christ's name we do pray, amen.